This week is Monster Legends of Oregon, and we have a special guest, Mr. Jeremy Wells. Hello, Jeremy. Howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy. How are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. So, um, who are you, and what do you do? Uh, well, I'm Jeremy Wells. Uh, I am a journalist. Uh, worked in newspapers and technical writing for 20 years. Um just started my own newspaper, the Carter County Times. Uh, nice. It was the middle of a recession and uh, a pandemic was the perfect time to start a newspaper. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a Bigfoot researcher uh, and for General Fortean. Um, I have uh, thought we were talking about Oklahoma this week. Uh, I had the wrong O. Uh, but I've yeah. done some Bigfoot research in uh, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, Arkansas. Uh, as well as here in Kentucky, which is where I live now and where I grew up, uh, Eastern Kentucky. Um, so, I, and I know Bigfoot is, is a big part of Oregon as well. So, I know that's mainly what you wanted to talk to me about was the Bigfoot stuff. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I mean, it might help if uh, you're talking about your background in newspapers and stuff. Help know you a little bit. Pardon, no. Uh, what was like, um, talk about your background in newspaper business. Oh, I, uh, you know, I started in newspapers in the year 2000. I was, uh, I was going to school to be a history teacher, um, and, uh, got my first writing job as an education reporter. Uh, and, uh, just really, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. That was the main reason that I wanted to, to, uh, to, to be a teacher is I thought that I would have, you know. Silly, I know, uh, now that I know what teachers go through, but I thought I'd have a lot of free time and my summer's free to do writing. Um, but uh, I got my first newspaper job in the year 2000, and since then, uh, for the last 20 years, all I've done for a living is write, uh, either newspaper work or technical writing or magazine writing, um, mostly newspaper writing. Um, newspapers allowed me to come home. I, I lived for 10 years in Austin, Texas, uh, and that's where I became involved with the Texas Bigfoot Research Conservancy, um, yes. and uh, they're now the NAWAC, the North American Wood Ape uh, Conservancy, uh, but then they were the TBRC, uh, and I did a lot of, if you've watched any of the, uh, the Monster Quest, you've seen the TBRC guys on there, uh, if you watched any of the uh, the Low Files, uh, he did uh, uh, an episode where he was in Area X with the NAWAC guys, uh, I've been inside Area X, uh, experienced rock throwing there in the cabin we were staying in. Um, I've found footprints in uh, the Sam Houston or the the Big Thicket National Forest uh, while doing research with the TBRC. Um, most of my research, most of my field research was done with the TBRC slash NAWAC. Um, 
But uh, recently I got the opportunity to, and by recently, I mean five years ago, uh, I got the opportunity to come home to Kentucky uh, and work for the newspapers here. Uh, and I did that until the recession caused my newspaper to shut down. So uh, ever the glutton for punishment, my partner and I decided to start our own newspaper. Um, and in the course of my newspaper work, I've done a lot of research and writing on different uh, cryptids and uh, other paranormal and 14 phenomena. I wrote a series for about two years for a newspaper called The Sound of Voice in Ohio uh, called River Valley Myths and Legends, uh, where I focused on different stories up and down the Ohio River Valley, um, you know, everything from the Loveland Frogs uh, to Mothman being, you know, yeah. some of the more famous stuff. Uh, but my favorite was to, to drill down to those more local, less known yeah. regions. Uh, yeah, I love those too. Uh, you know, stuff like in Adams County, Ohio, for instance, there's all kinds of, uh, there's uh, big black cat sightings, there are Bigfoot sightings, there are UFO sightings, there's a, an angel sighting is one of my favorites. Oh, angel sightings. Yeah, uh, at a, uh, uh, a place uh, called Wamsley, uh, there was a, an angel uh, that uh, was reportedly seen by a kid uh, who left the church because they were sick and they were apparently battling cancer or something. There's, there are a couple different versions of the story. Um, but, uh, you know, it goes that the kid left the church uh, in the middle of service, went outside, uh, saw this angel, uh, and was healed of whatever oh. affliction it was that they had. Uh, and the angel left behind its image burned into the side door of the church. Um, oh. And I've actually been there several times. The first time I saw it, I was a kid. You know, this is when the story, the first time I heard the story, I was about 13 years old and uh, went there and uh, saw the image burned into the side of the church door. And it really does. It looks like a big robed figure. It looks like the outline of a robed figure uh, with arms outstretched. Um, and uh, since then, the church has taken the door down because it was getting defaced. Um, they oh, no. actually tried to paint over it first because of the uh, graffiti and the, the defacement that people were doing. And when they painted over it, all the graffiti went away, but the image reappeared. Wow. So uh, the door has since been taken off the church and put away somewhere. God only knows where. Uh, I've never been able to talk to any of the people at the church. Um, and for years, I wasn't able to track down a photograph. You know, we had photographs we took, but they disappeared. Uh, my mom doesn't know where they went to. Uh, and my grandmother had photos, and we didn't know where those went to. Uh, and she had cut out a picture from the newspaper, too, and th that disappeared from her scrapbook. And so, you know, it was we were all scratching our heads. Is this some Mandela effect thing? Did we, yeah. you know, did, did we imagine this? Did we all, you know, just have some kind of uh, family mass hallucination? But, you know, I kept running into other people who remembered going there and seeing it. Uh, and eventually I was able to track down a copy of the photo from the uh, – West Union People's Defender newspaper uh, in Adams County, and they got me a copy of that photo. Uh, you can see it if you go to my uh, uh, the uh, I have a, a page on Facebook, River Valley Myths and Legends, and if you scroll through the stuff there, you can find that image uh, along with a link to my unsuccessful Kickstarter, which has the image and a fuller account of the story over there in the uh, in the updates. Um, and so, newspaper work has let me do you know I've, I've done stories on UFOs in northern Kentucky. I've, I've done stories on Bigfoot sightings here locally in, in uh, eastern Kentucky in the, the Grand community and in Boyd County. Um, so newspapers have enabled me to, uh, to, in addition to, you know, just making my living doing the writing. 
uh, have allowed me to continue uh, my passion for these weird little stories. Um, what started your passion for this um, cryptology and paranormal research? You know, my dad was a was a was a really avid reader. Um, you know, everything from from paperback westerns to uh, you know uh, science books. And one of the things my dad was interested in was Bigfoots and UFOs. Uh, and so uh, I remember reading, um, I'm going to say it was Ivan, one of Ivan T. Sanderson's books whenever I was eight, nine years old. Uh, and so, you know, I was just a little bitty feller and I just loved it all. And, you know, and since then I've, I've grown a lot more skeptical. Uh, you know, I, I was... You know, I remember in eighth grade doing my research paper on alien abductions for my English class. Um, that I was all in, whole hog as a as a true believer. Uh, and since then, I though I think the phenomenon's still real. Um, you know, I think that people are experiencing something. I've shied away from the extraterrestrial hypothesis and lean a little more toward uh, John Keel and uh, Jacques Vallée's uh, ideas about uh, whatever this phenomenon is. It's more psychologically interpreted, and uh, you know, Keel called them ultra-terrestrials. Uh, I, I lean a little more toward that now, uh, and especially the psychological uh, explanations for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've, I've just I've had an interest ever since I was a little kid. Um, have you heard about the the uh, apostate office promise or um, theory that? Uh, extraterrestrial abductions are like um, part of like when you're a baby you're getting born and you see all these people and like doctor masks and stuff. I, I have heard that one that it's a, that it's a, an early memory um, of, of, of that whole process. Um, that's an in, that's intriguing. Um, I uh, I tend to think that uh, this is going to be a little. It's going to sound a little weird, but 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 follow me on this. I think that a lot of the uh, what we call alien abduction phenomenon is um, a form of um, sexual anxiety psychosis, hmm. because um, or reproductive anxiety. Um, when you look at the history of this, um, there's a there's you know Jacques Vallée did a great job with it with you know with with all of his work, but especially with his first, you know, masterpiece, Passport to Magnolia, uh, drawing those parallels between old fairy lore and in aliens. Um, and one of the things you saw with fairy lore was the idea of changelings. That the fairies came, they took your baby, and they left a changeling in its place, um, which is a form of reproductive anxiety that, you know, my actual child is gone, and this sickly thing that's left behind is not my child. Um, when you look at, if, if you're looking at old lit myths and legends about gods and goddesses, Zeus was continuously, uh, seducing, uh, everybody, human women <laughs> yeah. in the form of the golden showers as a swan, as a bull, as, as you name it, you know? Yeah. So, you know, and fathering these, these heroes, uh, like, like Hercules, who were half human and half, half God, um, and so it's a phenomenon that seems to change to meet the expectations and the mores uh, of the culture and the society. And when you move into the, the Middle Ages, 
uh, when the church was more prevalent, um, there's this idea of, of, of incubi and succubi that come in. And they yeah. are spirits that visit you in the night and have sex with you. Um, and so if, if a lady had a child out of wedlock and it happened to look exactly like the local clergyman, well, of course, that good godly clergyman did not have an affair with this woman. It yeah. was a, uh, an incubus in the form of the clergyman that came and had sex with that lady and got her pregnant. Um, and when you look at the history of, the, you know, coming into the modern era, um, you know, the modern UFO era started in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold, and almost immediately thereafter, you had contactees. And one of the things that happened with a lot of contactees is that they had sexual relations with the aliens uh, that came to Earth. You know, uh, look at Woodrow Derenberger. With, he didn't actually have sex with aliens, but he talks about uh, when, you know, in his, you know, uh, Visitors from Lanulos, his, his book that he put out, he talks about visiting Lanulos and everybody was a nudist. Um, George Adamski talks about uh, nudist, uh, nudist aliens. And there are a lot of others um, who, who uh, you know, reported having sex with aliens. And then one of our very first uh, modern abduction cases, Antonio Villas-Boas in, in Brazil, uh, Villas-Boas uh, was abducted, but it was, it's kind of a transitional phase. He's one of the first modern abductees. He was taking, it wasn't like benevolent space brothers that came and talked to him and took him aboard their ship voluntarily. He was abducted, but then he was forced to have sex with what he called a feral, red-haired, uh, human-ish look, looking female who only spoke in growls and guttural uh, grunts and groans. Um, but then as we move into the more modern uh, abduction era, uh, you know, the, the, the ongoing joke is about, and, you know, and this is, we have Whitley Strieber to thank for this, um, you know, is uh, the anal probe. Uh, yeah. But the anal probe is not just, you know, aliens probing some farmer from Kansas for no reason. Um, it's a way to collect sperm there, you know, and there is a medical way of doing that. You stimulate the Cowper's gland and you cause a man to ejaculate whether he wants to or not. Um, and so we see this and we see women reporting having a, a, a needle inserted into their navel and have an ovum taken out. And the interesting thing about that is that this all comes about and starts right around the same time that we had our first test tube babies. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, as we're starting to be able to technologically grow children in a Petri dish, then we have aliens collecting our genetic material to grow alien human hybrids. Um, so there is, there's, it's completely off the topic of, of, of Bigfoots in Oregon, but this is, you know, uh, something that's intrigued me for a long time. This, this whole, uh, sexual anxiety and reproductive anxiety. And as I say that, my, my, my 14-month-old baby is out in the hallway crying, <laughs> wanting in here with daddy. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, that's, that's a theory that I've had, uh, that I have planned on doing some, some work on uh, in a future book at some point. Uh, and I'm not the only one to have this, this idea. I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing very heavily from folks like Patrick Harper, um, Mac Tonys, uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, and those folks. Okay. Um, do you remember the story about the um, monastery of nuns who probably got possessed by a sexual demon and there's a priest it's who got... France, right? In the uh, Middle I, Ages? I believe so, yes. Yeah, I, I, I don't recall the exact details, but I do, uh, I, I do recollect having read about that in, in different books. 
Um, and yeah, and that's right there along the same along the same lines. You know, you have a group of people that are practicing a life of repressing those natural human urges, uh, and there needs to be an outlet somewhere. And so there is, uh, you know, this this episode of mass hysteria uh, in the monastery where the nuns are possessed, which seems a little odd to me that people of God could be so easily possessed. Um, but whenever you're looking at it outside, as an outsider uh, and from this, you know, uh, reproductive slash sexual anxiety point of view, um, it makes perfect sense that a group of people that are repressing their natural urges would experience such a thing. Yeah. <clears throat> How has your um, background in newspapers, um, has it affected your re- research in Bigfoot and paranormal at all anyway? It has, I, I suppose. Um, it's made me ask those critical questions um, and, uh, you know, question things. You know, I don't just go in immediately accepting that everything's true. Um, but I also go in with, you know, you have to be diplomatic uh, in the newspaper business a lot. You have to keep your thoughts and your ideas to yourself uh, and and, and get the story from the other person. And I find that that has been very beneficial in my research and in my interviews. And I found that, you know, I often have people reach out to me because of my newspaper background. Uh, they don't know who else to talk to. Uh, the police don't care. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Air Force doesn't investigate UFOs anymore. They want to tell their story to somebody. Um, and, you know, I'm willing to listen and help them tell their story. Uh, and so, you know, one of the most recent ones that I did uh, was uh, this northern Kentucky UFO sightings this lady was having. Uh, and whenever, you know, she's contacted me with some pictures that were some intriguing pictures, but um, could have easily been faked. You know, there was just some light mm-hmm. streaks in the sky. It wasn't necessarily one of them. I looked at it and I was like, it could be the moon, you know, yeah. um, an out of focus moon. Uh, but in talking to her. Uh, it turned out that it wasn't just her. It was her and her husband and her nephew and her neighbor. They were all experiencing these lights. This is a, just south of Cincinnati on the Kentucky side of the river uh, near Big Bone Lick State Park, which is an intriguing little area all on its own. It's a, a natural salt lick uh, where they found all of these megafauna fossils um, oh. of you know mammoths and, and, and camels. And, and, uh, That's cool. Such. Uh, because you know, oh. the animals came there to you know have been coming there for centuries to to, to the salt lake there, and so it's a state park, and uh, so she lives right on the edge of that state park, and she was experiencing these lights, uh, and then it turns out when I started looking into it, she wasn't the only one experiencing these lights, um, but like a lot of people that, that feel compelled for whatever reason to share their experience, uh, whenever she started sharing with me, I found out that this wasn't her first experience, she had also experienced. Um, uh, a UFO sighting whenever she was in high school. And it was uh, back to this whole sexual thing. Uh, it was when her and her ex-husband, uh, high school boyfriend at the time, uh, were parked making out uh, yeah. at, a, at a makeout point. And uh, in the middle of their makeout session, these lights shined down on their vehicle and they saw this thing uh, that was the size of a football field uh, flying over them. And that's all she remembered. Um, but there, in discussing it with her, there was some missing time as well. Uh, and she's never really 
delved into trying to find out what happened in that missing time. I think she's a little scared, um, but she did have a missing time episode as involved with that as well. Um, and, you know, she said whenever she first, when the lights first shined in on them, you know, they were parked on the edge of a farm field and she thought it was a, some, a you know, somebody on a tractor shining lights, you know. Yeah. But then she, you know, thought to herself, why would a farmer be out here mowing hay at night? Uh, it doesn't make sense. And that's whenever they realized that it was a, a UFO uh, and her and her ex-husband beat feet out of there. And uh, when she got home, uh, there was an hour or so missing uh, that was unaccounted for. Uh, you know, she should have been, they should have been home a lot quicker than they were. Um, so, you know, that all came out of a lady just contacted me with some pictures of what's going on now on her property. Um, and you can find, um, well, those pictures used to be up on uh, the newspaper website for the newspaper I used to work for, but that site has been taken down and all the content is supposed to be migrated to the sister paper that took it over, but they haven't been yet. Uh, but you can find some of those photos posted at the same place um, on my Facebook page and uh, on the Kickstarter page. And uh, there are some videos that she sent me recently uh, of the continuing activity uh, that are posted to my YouTube channel. Yes. Um, what has been the most, uh, for someone looking for, um, like a Bigfoot evidence during Phil's research, what should they be looking for? Uh, keep your eyes on the ground. Uh, is my, you know, a lot of people get out there and they're wandering around and they're, they're looking at the trees and they're looking around. They're not paying attention to where their feet are going. Um, and that is the most important thing to me if you're, if you're wanting to find physical evidence as far as you know, footprint evidence, uh, is you've got to watch where your feet go. Um, it's something that I picked up a long time ago. Uh, my dad took me out hunting a lot whenever I was a, a kid. And so I watch where my feet go, so I'm sure that I'm not stepping on sticks and making a lot of noise. Uh, and one of the things that I've experienced is I've been out with people doing field research, and they will, for once I was in the Wachita Mount. For instance, I was in the Wachita Mountains once uh, with the TBRC group, the NAWAC group, uh, and uh, five or six people walked right past a shed antler uh, that was on the ground. Nobody saw mm. it. Uh, and I spotted it laying there amongst the, the leaves and de detritus and picked it up. And, you know, it was just a regular antler shed. Uh, just an interesting little thing to find. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that none of them noticed because they weren't looking at their feet. Um one of the footprints I found, and I'll send you a photograph of this um, uh, through Facebook later on. Uh, we were in the, the Lance Road Zero unit of the uh, Big Thicket down in East Texas. Uh, that was when the TBRC was doing their Area X, Area Y. That was Area Y. Uh, and for the longest time, we weren't allowed to tell people where it was. Now I can say, since they're no longer in there, no longer doing active research. Uh, that it's the Lance Rozier unit of the Big Thicket. Um, I was, we were checking camera traps, uh, and uh, as we were walking, um, you know, I'm looking at the ground like I always do, uh, and we had come out of the swamps, you know, we're in there, it's crazy hot uh, in those hip waders, and I come out of, the, out of the swamp up onto a little hillock of pine duck, you know, between these trees, and uh, look down, and there's a perfect outline of a footprint, you know, and this oh. is the guy that was with me, uh, Ken Helmer, he's a, he's a surgeon, 
but he's also a very large man, um, rugby player, you know, very fit, and he could not make a dent in this stuff. He could not, he could not make a footprint in it. Um, and whatever this was, it didn't have an exceptionally long footprint. It was only about 13, I think it was about 13, 13 and a half inches long. Um, but, you know, you can clearly see the big toe sticking out. So whatever it was that made this was, A, extremely heavy, and B, barefoot in those swamps. You know, and I'm talking like, you know, these are swamps that, you know, water full of giardia from feral hogs pooping in it. And, uh, you know, we came upon a water moccasin sunning itself on a, on a stump. Um, earlier in the day um and so you know there's only so many explanations for what this was this very human looking footprint um could it have been some toothless hillbilly out there checking their moonshine stills walking around yeah. barefoot yeah yeah it, it could have been um although i can't imagine anybody going barefoot i mean this was like in april it was you know and it's oh. april in southeast texas so it's it's warm april it's not like a kentucky or a tennessee april uh, but the water was still a bit chilly, you know, um, you know, especially in the mornings, you know, and as the day goes on, it gets hot and humid, especially if you're wearing rubber boots up to your chest. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't be out there barefoot. And, I wouldn't be either. And, and I consider myself a barefoot hillbilly, you know, I, I, I mm-hmm. like to be barefoot. Um, but I wouldn't have been out there in that stuff barefoot. You can't see what's underneath the water. You don't see if it's a sharp stick. You don't see if there's a you know, a crawdad there that's going to pinch your toes, uh, you know, uh, water moccasins, like I said. It's not someplace I would want to be barefoot. Um, but we found that footprint. Um, other folks that were with us on that trip uh, not weren't with me and, and, and Ken at that moment. There was another group of people who were checking other sets of traps, camera traps. Um, they came across the trackway, uh, but it was in the water, under the water. And as they moved in to see it, uh, they muddied the water, so they weren't able to get good, clear photographs of those footprints under the water. But they found a trackway of footprints uh, under the water, in that shallow water. Um, and, you know, that's an area that's uh, it's harsh. It's hard to get along in there if you're a human. But if you're an animal, there's I mean, it's really a rich and diverse ecosystem. You know, there are crawdads, there are feral hogs, there are deer. You know, on our camera traps, we caught... A, a video of a, of a bobcat yeah. chasing a deer. Um, there's a lot oh. of, of animal life in there, um, and you know a lot of a lot of food sources. Um, you know, and that's another thing we like to tell people to look for when they're out looking for Bigfoot. If there is enough food sources in the area to support other large mammals, then there's enough food there to support uh, something like a Bigfoot. Uh, one of the comparisons that we like to make is uh, the black bear. Uh, if there's enough food sources that it could support a population of black bears, you know, um, which is another very large omnivore, then it could probably support Bigfoot. Um, you know, and Bigfoot's one of those things that I, uh, while I consider myself a skeptic, um, I think there is a possibility that it's a real flesh and blood animal. Um, you know, not something on the parallel end of the scale. Um, I believe that's my opinion on it too. It's more flesh and blood than like a extra dimensional alien. Yeah, yeah and that's that, you know that's a big that's a, that's a big thing is the extra dimensional thing uh, and the uh, the paranormal Bigfoot, you know, the, yeah. the spirit Bigfoot, and a lot of folks will point to Native American legends 
and say, see, he's a spirit animal. They consider him a spirit animal. Well, nah, Native Americans also considered everything a spirit animal. Yeah, they consider coyote to be a spirit creature. Uh, they consider yeah. the raven to be a spirit creature. But they're in addition to being a, a spirit creature, you know, coyote being a trickster, um, he's also a flesh and blood animal. So the idea mm. that these are spiritual beings in Native American legend and lore doesn't necessarily rule out the fact that they could also be a flesh and blood animal. Um, but yeah, food sources. Food sources are a big thing, and keep your eyes on the ground. That Those are the two big, my, my two main pieces, my two main recommendations, I would say, to keep your eyes on the ground and, and check for food sources. What kind of food sources do you think uh, Sasquatch would eat? Uh, basically anything that we would eat. You know, there are, there are, there's, you know, I've talked to folks that think that they're actually a human, a type of human. Um, I've talked uh -huh. to folks that think that they're a type of ape. Um, either way, uh, they're a large hominid of some sort, most likely. Uh, and uh, most likely omnivorous. Um, and so think of, um, think of things that you see chimpanzees and gorillas eating. Um, probably less so gorillas, because gorillas are totally uh, vegetarian. You know, and you can tell by the big gut they have, um, that they have that gut there to, you know, to help extra, to digest those, uh, those really starchy leaves that they eat, like other ruminants. Um, but, and, and we don't see that reported with the Sasquatch. We don't see the, the reports of a pot belly like a, like a gorilla has. We see reports of a much more svelte, you know, chimpanzee-like physique as far as, you know, gut structure. Uh, so that would lead me to believe that like chimpanzees, they're more omnivorous. They're not eating roughage and rough leaves. Um, they are eating berries. Uh, they're eating mushrooms when they're in season. Um, they're probably eating insects. Um, and this is where it's kind of hard to tell whether some of the stuff you're going to see is bears or, or Bigfoots, you know. However, if you see a log that's torn apart for something to get at the grubs that are eating the wood inside, how do you know if that's a bear or a Bigfoot? You, know, you, you can't mm. unless you see other evidence around, you know. Uh, if you see claw marks in it on other parts of the wood, then it's probably a bear. Um, mm. If you see human-type footprints in front of it, then it was probably a Sasquatch that was in there tearing that log apart to eat those grubs. So it's not just one piece of evidence. You have to, you know, you have to piece these things together. Uh, and you can't, you know, there are folks that everything that they see is evidence of Sasquatch, and that kind of drives me crazy. Me too. Um, you know, uh, and the other thing that, uh, that drives me crazy is, well, this is known Sasquatch behavior. No, no it's not, because no. nothing is known about this creature verifiably, because it's undocumented. Um, everything that we say is conjecture. Everything that I'm saying right now is complete conjecture. Uh, but it's conjecture that's based on observation of other hominids uh, and, and, and other known animals. Um, so, you know, berries in the spring, blackberries, blueberries, uh, cranberries, uh, depending on where it is that you're at, what those food sources are, uh, wild raspberries, um, rose hips uh, from, from wild multiflora rose. Uh, those rose hips are really high in vitamin C, very nutritious. Um, insect larvae uh, and, you know, meat, available meat. Uh, you know, I've heard many, many reports uh, of Bigfoots with deer, you know, with dead deer over their shoulders. Uh, I've heard several reports 
of them scavenging roadkill. Um, so, you know, they're an opportunistic, they're most likely an opportunistic feeder. Um, and that's, you know, like I said, that's based on stories that I've heard from others and that's based on comparisons to the other known great apes. Uh, you know, we know that chimpanzees hunt and they hunt yeah. in packs. Um, and, you know, uh, so, so you base it on stuff like that. And, um, you know, I've written a couple articles um, with folks from the NAWAC. Uh, me and Mike Mays worked on an installment of a series that NAWAC did called The, the Great Ape Behavioral Parallels. Uh, and Mike, if you're not familiar with his work, um, he has a, a blog, uh, uh, the Texas, uh, Texas Cryptid Hunter uh, blog. Uh, you should really check that out. But Mike uh, and I did this story about uh, there was a, a, an ape named uh, Santini who uh, was uh, not only throwing rocks at visitors to the zoo, he was exhibiting forethought. Uh, he knew that he was going to want to throw rocks later in the day. And he would gather up a little arsenal and, and put it all together. And he would have piles of rocks that he collected and gathered together. And then when visitors would come, he would chuck rocks at them across the ravine, um, you know, the, the, the moat that was there in the zoo. And, um, you know, that's something that requires something with a gripping hand. Um, you know, a bear can't throw a rock. Um, a bobcat can't throw a rock. Uh, humans can throw rocks and chimpanzees can throw rocks and the other great apes can throw things. Um, you know, the, uh, the old standby joke about throwing feces. Um, they can do that because they have a gripping hand that they can use to hold something and then fling it. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that whenever people give me episodes of rock throwing, I find that those stories are really compelling. You know, the classic ape Canyon story, um, uh, you know, uh, from Mount St. Helens, where the the apes threw the rocks at the cabin um, and uh, ran off the miners or the prospectors. Uh, and it's one of the things that we experienced in the Wachita Mountains. Uh, you know, we were in a cabin. You know, in this 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 area, this area X area in the Wachitals is extremely remote. Um, you're you're driving for you know forever out logging roads, and it's you're surrounded by uh, Georgia Pacific owned uh, tree plantations where basically they've cut down all the trees and replanted it with, with evergreens, fast growing pine trees um, for, for paper pulp and, and, and lumber. Uh, and um, so it's kind of a monoculture all around it. But then in the middle of this, there's an area that's owned by the Nature Conservancy. Uh, that's a combination of Nature Conservancy and privately owned land. Um, and it's just pristine. Uh, it's gorgeous, and it's right there on the Oklahoma-Arkansas border, uh, and uh, inside that area, uh, it's you have to have a four-wheel drive to get out there. Uh, I think if it's not that way yet, eventually you're going to need to have a, a four-wheeler or other ATV. You're gonna, only going to be able to take a truck in so far. Uh, the last time I was there, because of the washout and fallen trees, we actually had to create a new section of road you know, go around where the old road was washed out um, and make our own road around it. Um, one of the most rugged, you know, and I grew up in eastern Kentucky in Appalachia, uh, and I currently live uh, on 64 acres of wooded land uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, in, in, in Elliott County, Kentucky. Um, I'm used to remote places, and it doesn't really 
strike the remoteness doesn't generally strike me as being something uh, you know exceptional um, but this area X where the NAWAC is, is focusing their efforts right now um, it strikes even me in its remoteness it's the kind of remoteness that you can expect us to have here in North America uh, in the 21st century um, but, but it's it's out there um, and uh, so there's the chance I say all that to say that the chances of us getting hoaxed by someone are zero to none. Uh, there's nobody else in there. There's nobody sneaking in there uh, to throw rocks at our cabin. Um, the way the cabin was like, I'm amazed that they even got wood in there to build this cabin um, mm. in the first place. Uh, but the, you know, the way the cabin is located, it's away from the edge of the hill. There are no trees overhanging it. Uh, this was not acorns uh, hitting the roof. This was not, you know, uh, hickory nuts falling off a tree and hitting the roof. This was rocks. Um, we've collected some rocks off the top of the house for the cabin later. Um, and it was, you know, going on through the night, uh, as we would lay there and start to doze off, as we would start to doze off, the rocks would start hitting the top of the, the tin roof again. And we would get up and we would look out the window, shine lights out the window, see what we could see. Um, the activity would cease. Uh, we would think that everything was okay. We were going to get some sleep now. We'd start to doze off, and then ping, 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 here come the rocks. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's that's something that understands uh, that we are starting to settle back down again and that we're not looking for it. Uh, it's something that has a gripping hand that can throw. Uh, and uh, it's something that was curious about us being in there and knew that we weren't something that was in there uh, on the regular. Um, something that understood the environment where it lived. And so, you know, people often ask, why haven't we found one yet? Well, we're dealing with an invari- a very, if, you know, if it's real, uh, I still will, will go out 100% and say it's real because I've found some exceptional evidence like the footprint uh, and I've found some, or experienced some interesting things like the rock throwing, uh, but I've never seen one with my own eyes. Um, so I can't say for 100% sure that they exist. Uh, I'm probably 70-30 on that. And before I found the footprint, I was probably 70% skeptic, 30% believer. And after finding the footprint, that kind of flipped to where yeah. I was 70% believer, uh, 30% skeptic. Um, but yeah, if there is this animal out there, we're dealing with something that's very intelligent, you know, at least as intelligent as the other great apes. Uh, and... Uh, you know, we've we've seen Coco uh, learn yeah, Coco. Yes. language. Um, uh, uh, Doctor Savage has done work with the bonobos and taught them to speak using uh, uh, message boards, you know, with symbols on it that they press for different words. And uh, you know, she even experienced a, a, an episode where she was out walking the preserve with these bonobos and. One of the children of this bonobo who had learned from its own mother how to use these symbols, not from, from Dr. Uh, Savage Rumball uh, to learn these symbols, but from her mother, uh, took a stick and wrote in the dirt to indicate that it was ready to go home, ready to go oh. back to the uh, – that's, that's one of the stories that, you know, just one of my favorite stories of exhibiting, you know, uh, showing this great ape intelligence um, and uh, – so we're dealing with something, I think, that is at least as intelligent as that. 
Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to get this evidence. You know, people say, um, you know, why haven't we found one yet? Well, because they're smart. Uh, if they're out there, if they are real, they're very smart. And uh, people say, why haven't we found a body yet? Well, like I was saying earlier, you know, I had five other guys with me and they all walked right past that shed antler without seeing it. Um, yeah. At another point in the same hike, three of them stepped over a, a, a rattlesnake that was sunning itself on the path that they didn't see that I was like, Oh, whoa, I grabbed the guy in front of me. You know, I'm like, Whoa, whoa, be careful. That's a, that's a snake there. And it turned out that it was a rattlesnake and, you know, we prodded it with a stick and got it to move on. Um, and it obviously didn't want to hurt anybody or else it would have struck one of those guys that stepped right over top of it. Um, but you know, they could have accidentally stepped on it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that people aren't as observant, um, especially people that don't spend a lot of time in, in the outdoors. Uh, you know, you're not really observant. And as a hunter, you know, I have shot and killed animals that I couldn't find. Uh, and, you know, because they've fallen into heavy brush, you know, like a squirrel or a rabbit. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's just gone. And then by the time, you know, you get back out looking for it again, it's the scavengers have gotten to it. Uh, you know, think of the number of deer that we have. And other than those that are killed along the side of the road, those roadkill deer, you see a lot of roadkill animals. Yeah. You see dead, see dead deer on the side of the road. You'll see dead raccoons and dead possums on the side of the road. But go for a walk in the woods right next to that road. Go out in the woods. See how many dead animals you actually find. How many? Yeah, no, I, I can tell you that in my in my time, you know, in the woods, uh, you know, I'm 45 years old. I grew up running the woods and running the creeks. Uh, I have found, other than ones that I've shot myself, I have found one dead deer body in the woods, one carcass, and it was a poached carcass. Uh, because whoever had shot it had cut the top of the head off, just cut the antlers off, uh, and uh, filleted it down the back and took out the back strap and then left the rest of the deer laying there to rot. Um, and, uh, and that was in the process of being gone, uh, because, uh, the, the scavengers were already at it. The crows had already started picking up what was left. Um, the flies had already blown it. Um, you know, the, the, the raccoons and the possums were already in there eating on it. And so there wasn't too much of that left and it had probably not been dead very long. Um, because yeah. if it had been dead very long, I wouldn't have found anything except a, maybe a skull with, a, with, you know, hacksaw marks on it. Um, and so that's the only dead deer that I've found in the woods, uh, other than ones that, you know, somebody shot them and I was looking for them. Um, I've come across a few uh, empty turtle shells in my time as well. Um, but, uh, you know, going back to that shed that I found, one of the things that was striking about it was when I picked it up, uh, there were... The, the, the ends of the tines were com chewed completely off. Um, mice and other small rodents had already been at that, chewing on that for the calcium content. Uh, so even bones don't last that long in the woods, uh, at least not complete bones. Um, they will break down fairly quickly as well. Uh, and, you know, brush will grow over them. Vines will grow over them. Honeysuckle grows like crazy. Uh, and, you know, will cover things over and you can't see it. Um brambles and uh you know blackberry and raspberry brambles will grow over top of things like that and it'll disappear and when an animal is wounded and is ready to die 
you know, anybody that's had a, any farm kid that's had a dog or a cat that's gotten old and gotten ready to die will tell you that they go find some place where they're not going to be bothered to lay down and die. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what these, you know, that's what other animals do as well. You know, they know that they're dying. They know that they're hurt. They need some place to hide um, to either recover or die, you know, and, and they're probably not thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I need to go find go someplace where somebody's not going to find, not going to find my body. What they're thinking is I'm injured. I need to go someplace where I can recuperate. I need yeah. to get out of view. I need to be hidden. And so they drag themselves back into the brush. They drag themselves back under briars and uh, then nobody sees it. You know, uh, other animals can smell them and find them and, and eat what's left of the body. And then the bones are there underneath a raspberry bush until the, the mice have chewed them up to almost nothing. And, and the fungus has, has started breaking them down and they're covered in moss and they're just very difficult to see. Uh, which again goes back to why I say keep your eyes on the trail. Um, keep your eyes on your feet. I mean, you know, I know that it's gorgeous out there and you want to look in the trees and you want, you're hoping to see a Bigfoot along the path. Um, but you're more likely to find evidence if your eyes are on the green. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if, if there's an animal in the area, there's going to be other things to alert you to that. You know, there's a, with, with Bigfoot, we get told about the smell. Yeah. You know, they stink a, a lot. Yeah. There's, you know, like a, like a there's skunk ape in yeah. Florida, and there was the Momo in Missouri, mm-hmm. in the Kentucky. You have. Yeah, everybody every, talks about how they stink. Yeah, everybody. Um, that, that's something that, that I've not met a witness yet who's been close to one who didn't comment on how they stink. Like a human body odor, like a. Like a like a long unwashed human body odor smell mixed with wet dog. Yeah. Know, uh, Sewer, wet dog. Rotting garbage. That's, that's you know, that's the, everybody talks about the smell. So you know, don't worry about keeping your eyes peeled for, for what's there hiding behind a tree. Um, if you're looking for evidence, keep your eyes on the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll be alerted by sounds and smells if there's something else there. Uh, and if you're not alerted by sounds and smells, you're probably not going to spot it anyway. Uh, you know, it could be right there, and you're probably not going to see it. Um, so that's you know, I, I always keep my eye on the ground. Uh, and but then I'm also generally out with other people, so if they want to keep scanning the woodline, that's great. Um, but the only time I really scan the woodline is whenever I'm doing stuff like call blasting and, and using spotlight. Um, then I'm watching for what might be you know, looking for eye shine, uh, that kind of thing, because you can't really see the ground at night anyways. Um, yeah. but, but for me, that's my, that's what I do is I, I watch the ground always and keep my eyes out for those food sources. Um, you know, if the berries are ripe on this part of the hill right now, but they're not ripe on the other part of the hill, what are the part of the hill where the berries are ripe? Um, because they do ripen at different times, you know, um, Raspberries ripen first, and then blackberries ripen. Um, morel mushrooms are up um, March through April. Um, by the time you get to June and July, um, chanterelle mushrooms are up. You know, throughout late summer. Uh, so you know places where you know that those food sources are, uh, and mushrooms are a great example because once you find them, uh, you know that they're going to come back year after year. Uh, and berries are another great example because you know that those bushes are there and that they're going to come back year after year. 
uh, go to those places at the time of year when they're ripe and when they're ready. Um, because that's what those animals are going to do as well. They're going to follow those food sources, um, especially in you know in mountainous areas when you're out in Oregon and Washington. Uh, things are going to ripen at different elevations, and you know we know that the other animals do this. We know that bears go up in the mountains and eat um, moths from under the rocks uh, in the spring, and that then they come down into the valleys as things ripen down in the valleys. But you know. They follow the food sources, and so that's what you have to do while you're looking for them as well, is follow those food sources. Uh, for people who don't know, I may listen to this, what is um, call blasting? So call blasting is, this is kind of a controversial thing. I've done it just because other folks have, have done it. Um, if you've seen any of the, the, you know, the Bigfoot shows, you've probably seen them um, set up speakers uh, and take an audio recording of presumed, and I say presumed because we don't know for sure that these vocalizations are um, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, but there are certain things like uh, the Ohio Scream, um, which yeah. you can get on Google and Google the Ohio Scream and you'll find it uh, real quick. You'll find a dozen different versions of it uh, where everybody and their uncles put up their third and fourth generation copy. Uh, but you Call blasting is uh, doing those vocalizations that we're not really sure what they're supposed to mean. Are they mating calls? Are they stay away, this is my territory calls? Are they uh, I'm here, come find me calls? Um, we don't know what they mean. Uh, but uh, it's vocalizations that are presumed to be Sasquatch. And you play, play them on loudspeakers and then you turn them off and you listen for a response. Um, or, and or look for things that are coming in that is interested. Um, and so, you know, you do, you, you call blast with the Ohio screen, uh, you call blast with the, the Sierra sounds, uh, which are those gibbering, almost human-like uh, vocalizations that almost sound like talking. Um, you blast that stuff out, and then you wait to see if you get a response. Um, some folks will just do it, you know, and they'll just, oh! You know themselves yeah. with their own voice, um, and uh, and see what they get as well. But the call blasting generally is done with big loudspeakers, and uh, you know I have done that. You need to be careful too. I mean, I, we were doing that along um, uh, let's say it was the Trinity River, it might have been the Red River. I forget what river it was that we were on. But we uh, were doing a, a thing down in eastern Texas, and we were going up and down the river. We had a team set up at different spots along the river. We'd gone out in boats, and people had dropped us off. Uh, and we were just there to listen. Uh, and we had folks on a boat going up and down the river blasting, um, you know, the Ohio howl. And um, we were, you know, they would message us on the walkie-talkie that, you know, we're blasting in three we would hear them blast the call way off in the distance. And then we were listening for anything that was close to us. You know, and we were on very remote parts of the river, parts that you could only reach by boat. Um, you know, well, I guess you could have hiked in, but it would have been a hell of a hike. Um, and uh, we had to stop it because as they were blasting, people started shooting. Um, oh. They were just shooting into the air, I'm sure, just to scare off what they thought was... You know, uh, these were locals that they heard that sound and they were freaked out, you know, people that live along the river. Uh, and so they came out and started shooting to scare off 
what they thought was a monster. Um, and so we had to stop it just for the safety of, uh, of, of our folks, you know, and we didn't want somebody to accidentally get shot out on the boat. Um, yeah. And so that's, you know, uh, it's best to do this in a very remote region. And we thought we were remote, but, you know, there's people live everywhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever we uh, woke up and were exploring our campsite area the next morning, as we went down to the river, we found uh, crawfish traps that were set out. Um, so somebody was coming in there and, and trapping crawfish, uh, crawdads, as I call them. Um, they call them crawfish or crayfish. There. Crawdaddies. Call them crawdaddies. I call them crawdaddies. It's because you're Appalachian, right? Yeah. You're in Tennessee, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's me. I grew up calling them crawdads. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you need to be careful. And that's what call blasting is. Um, in the Wachita's one time, uh, we were call blasting, and uh, we'd had a coyote sneak in very close to us, and we didn't realize mm. that he was there. And, uh, you know, he was just curious. And uh, we let loose with the call blast, and we heard a yip, and we saw this guy jump, like jump, mm. like, you know, uh, an insane vertical. He just jumped and turned in midair and took off flying out of there. <laughs> like, it startled the crap out of him. Um, but the, the interesting thing about that was how close he was able to get to us without us even realizing he was there. You know, yeah. so that's what I say... When I say that, you know, you're not going to see them unless they want to be seen uh, or unless they're, you know, you're just really lucky. You know, this was a known animal that had creeped right up in on us. You know, it was dark. Granted, it would probably be a lot harder for him to creep up on us in the daylight. Um, but if animals don't want to be seen, they're not going to be seen. Um, so you're, you're better suited, I think, looking at the ground and looking for that evidence on the ground. Yeah. Especially oh, if you well, want to cast footprints, you know. Yeah. How would you describe these footprints for people? Like they're people were looking for a footprint, and sometimes I see photos, and like it's just like a piece of like, like it has no toes or nothing to it. Like sometimes, you know, well, they're I like mean, weird looking. You're not going to see the toes um, because they're not going to press into the dirt all the way. And so there's a lot of stuff that I see as footprint evidence, and it might be footprint evidence, but it's not really compelling. It's not worth casting. Or spending your time on to me um, because it's it's unclear. Yeah. Uh, look, you what, what you want to look for though are those toe prints. You, you know, you want clear toe prints. And um, Jeff Meldrum, Doctor Doctor Meldrum, has talked about what he calls the mid tarsal break, uh, and it's where if you look at your foot, you know, and, and you bend your foot, you'll see your toes bend. But yeah. the middle of your human foot does not bend. You know, yeah. it, it'll flex a little bit, but there's not a, a hinge there. If you look at your hand, on the other hand, you know, the, the big line that goes across the palm of your hand, yeah. that's where your hand bends, you know, below your fingers. And in apes, where the, hand, where the foot is a grasping foot, in the same way that the hand is a grasping hand, there is that same mid mid tarsal break, uh, Doctor Meldrum calls it, and Sasquatch are somewhere between humans and apes uh, in their physiology there. Uh, and so what you see is there is that flexion in the foot that you don't have in the human foot. Uh, so as they step and the foot bends, it raises up a mound of dirt 
in the middle that will not yeah. be left behind by a human footprint um, necessarily. So if you're finding footprints in like fine sand or, or, or very, you know, the, the perfect consistency of mud or clay, uh, you're going to see that mid-tarsal break. Uh, you're not necessarily going to see that in stuff like, you know, pine needles and, 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 and leaf litter when you find a footprint there. Uh, those are going to be a little more amorphous, and you're going to have to you know, look for the evidence of those toes. Um, like I said, the thing that, that really stood out to me on the footprint I found was that, no, the, the four smaller toes are not very clear at all, but there's that divergent big toe that sticks out, um, and it's a very clear big toe print that, that we got on that footprint, um, and you'll be able to see that whenever I send you the photo. Um, um, you know, it, it's obviously something that had human-like toes left this, or it's just an amazing coincidence that something was drug out of the ground there that left a very human footprint-looking uh, uh, impression. But, uh, yeah, you're going to look for those toes, and you're going to look for that mid-tarsal break, evidence of that mid-tarsal break. Uh, and you have to be careful, you know, because uh, there are a lot of people, you know, barefoot running, for instance, um, has become a, a pretty popular and common uh, uh, exercise and pastime. And, uh, you know, with the vibrant five finger or five toes or whatever it's called, um, uh, the, those running shoes, with, you know, with individual toes, um, the, you know, there's the possibility that you'll see that and there will not be the branded vibram showing up, but you'll still see those toes in what looks like a footprint. And it could have been left by somebody that's running in those those vibram uh, running shoes, you know, with the, with the separate toes. Um, and I saw recently there's a there's a new product on the market that's a sock um, that's like uh, got a Kevlar coating or something on the outside, so it won't be poked by briars and stuff. Uh, and it's a you know it's a pair of the toe socks uh, that you're encouraged to run barefoot. You're basically barefoot other than the sock. And um, I've seen those advertised on Facebook and on YouTube uh, videos. And uh, so, you know, there, there, there's, there is the possibility, you know, even though you're out in the middle of nowhere, that you could find a human footprint and get really excited. Um, so, you know, it's, you need to look for those other things. You need to look for that mid-tarsal break. Uh, and then just the, the sheer bulk and size of it. Even if you have a, an exceptionally large human foot, you know, like these basketball players, these guys that wear size, uh, you know, 15 shoes up, yeah. um, even though the foot is very long, it's rather slight. It's thin. Yeah. It's not yeah. bulky all the way around. And so, you know, with Sasquatch, we're talking about what is presumed to be a very robust animal. Um, so you're going to see a, a very wide width. Uh, in that, in addition to the uh, to, to the mid tarsal break and, and those toes and the you know uh, the divergent big toe, which can almost stick out a little bit like a, like a thumb, um, because it is you know even though they're in a more human configuration, um, the assumption is is that that bone structure is is much more simian than human. Um, um, I hate to use the term missing link, but it's you know almost missing linkish there in the uh, in the physiology, um, you know, folks like Jeff Meldrum have, you know, mapped what they presume to be the bones in those foots. Uh, and I'm sure that anybody that's 
spent any amount of time researching Sasquatch is familiar with the cripple foot uh, print. Um, and that was, you know, examined by podiatrists who, you know, saw the pathology of a, of a broken foot that had healed incorrectly. Um, and, you know, so there, there, there are clues for those that know what they're looking for. Um, uh, Jeff Meldrum's book, Legend Meets Science, you know, I know that they, they did a Discovery Channel program on it. Uh, and that's a good program. Uh, but the book itself is a, is a better and fantastic source um, for, for folks that are looking for um, how to verify this evidence. Um, it's full of technical technical drawings and, and, and information. Hmm. Okay. Do you think um, the population of Bigfoot is high or or is it low, do you think? Um, we're obviously not talking about something that's, you know, as prolific as deer. You know, yeah. Say, you know, because you, it, it's kind of hard to throw a rock and not hit a deer in America now. Um, so we're looking at something that probably, ha- I mean, it obviously has to have enough numbers to reproduce. Um, yeah. But I don't think we're looking at a, like a huge population. Um, we may even be looking at a population that is that is in the, the levels that we would consider critical or endangered. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, it's something that's probably comparable to black bears. Uh, we have black bears, uh, you know, in Tennessee, if you go to someplace like Gatlinburg, uh, you see black bears everywhere. Um, but that's because they're protected. Um, there's a lot of food sources and it's, you know, it's part of the tourism industry. People are coming there to see those bears. Uh, and so, you know, they're going to do a, a good job of protecting them. Um, places like where I live in Eastern Kentucky, um, we're within the black bear historic range. Um, and we occasionally have bears that, that are seen, you know, uh, in Greenup County, Elliott County, Carter County, these areas right along the, uh, the West Virginia border. And, uh, the, 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 the local, spin on that is that these are bears that wander over from West Virginia where there's a larger population. Well, no, they're mm. probably living here uh, yeah. all, all the time. We just don't see them because the numbers aren't extremely high the way they are in places like Gatlinburg and the way they are uh, up in the, the higher mountains of West Virginia. They're here. Uh, we just don't have those really high numbers. Uh, and so once in a blue moon, um, usually when one gets hit by a car, uh, along US 23, um, then, you know, people will, will, will talk about, you know, oh, this is a bear that probably wandered in from West Virginia. No, it's here. They're here. They live here. You just don't see them because A, there's not a lot of them, uh, and B, they don't want to be seen. Um, and so, you know, I, I use the, the black bear comparison a lot uh, for Sasquatch. I think that we're looking at probably comparable numbers, um, uh, comparable diet. Uh, and uh, comparable ranges in general. Hmm. Any place that has that can support a population of black bears, any place that has sufficient food sources and sufficient water to support a population of black bears could support a population of Bigfoot. Makes sense. Uh, how, do you think uh, Sasquatch has a, like a wide range of territory or a, more like a nomadic or different things on that you know i really i, I don't know um 
like I said, I think they follow food sources. So I think that they probably have seasonal ranges. Um, but anything we say about range and territoriality um, is all pure conjecture at this point. Yeah. Uh, we know that, you know, that, that, that chimpanzees, for instance, you know, will violently protect their territory from other chimpanzee bands. Um, but we don't know that Sasquatch necessarily live together in those type of family bands. Um, there's an assumption that they do, and there are a few stories that seem to indicate that they do, that they live together in small family groups. Um, you know, uh, go back to that uh, classic case of uh, uh, the, 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 the prospector who was picked up in his sleeping bag and uh, taken off and uh, yeah. with a band for a couple of days before they ate his snuff and uh, then tried to drink his golden hot coffee and he was able to jump up and run away. <laughs> you know, and he described that as being a, a small family group of, you know, a male, a female, and uh, I believe it was two youngsters. Um, and so, you know, based on stories like that, it could be something more akin to, to, to a gorilla troop uh, than, you know, than a, a chimpanzee band. Um, and, and or almost even more human nuclear family type. Um, but we don't know for sure. Uh, and I'm sure that there's, if you know, if they are a real animal, um, it's going to be in the same way that there are juvenile groups and adolescent groups. You know, you see with uh, uh, with these other primates that you know the dominant male will run off the younger males uh, whenever they get to a to a certain age, and those males will live together in bachelor groups until they establish their own family. And it's not just, you know, we see that amongst all kinds of animals, you know, turkeys. You know, you'll see groups of young jakes hanging together uh, until they're big enough to you know, establish their own harem in the way that a, that a big gobbler will. You know, we see that with elk. Um, we see deer that run together in, in small bachelor groups uh, until they, you know, until the rut comes in and then they will violently fight each other. Um so, you know, you can take things that we know about other animals and, and project that onto the Sasquatch, uh, you know, uh, and, and make assumptions based on that. Um, but until we, until we, you know, collect a phenotype and uh, establish that, A, that they're a real animal, uh, and then B, from establishing that they're a real animal, uh, are able to get the resources necessary to go into where we know that they're living and, and find a troop to... to you know, find our Jane Goodall of the Sasquatches, um, you know, our Diane Fossey of the Sasquatches, then we're not going to know for sure um, exactly how they live. You know, anything that we say is just conjecture or is based on anecdotal evidence that comes from, you know, from these sightings um, and uh, reports that, you know, that it pays to be skeptical about. I completely agree with you. We have to be very careful about making primitive. Some people say like make um, presumptions on things and they state as fact, and like I get so aggravated with that because we, we don't know for sure. Like I can just say something. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you can't let you can't get too upset about it. Um, or else you'll be outraged all the time. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> and uh, it, I, you know, I, I come at all these things from a from a from a very agnostic point of view. Um, I think saying 100% we know this to be true is just as arrogant as saying 100% we know that it's all fake and, yeah. and all, all bullcrap um, because it's one of those things that you can't know um, and you need to be able to admit to yourself and admit to others, you know what, I don't know. Um, and that's what makes it worthy of more research is the fact that we don't know. Uh, if we knew, then there wouldn't be any reason to go out there looking for them. Uh, if we knew, you know, for 100% sure that they were real or 100% sure that they weren't real, uh, there's no reason to get out there in the woods, uh, to get out there in the backcountry and, and look for them. Um, the reason to do that is because we don't know. And we need to be comfortable with saying we don't know. And maybe we'll never know. I agree. Uh, I was doing some research for this. And have you heard of the Bat Squatch? I have heard of the Bat Squatch. Um, yeah. Um, it's a wonderful. It's, it's it's an interesting phenomenon to me that that Squatch gets appended to um, to so many different things now. Anything that's 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 um, sort of a chimera of human yeah. or animal uh, or or human. It has human like qualities. We'll get that Squatch uh, appellation appended to them. Um, because yeah, in Kentucky we have the sheep squatch. Yeah. If you're not familiar with that, it's uh, uh, the the Pope Lick Bridge monster uh, is related is sometimes conflated with the with the sheep squatch, and it's uh, it's almost like um like like a satyr type creature, except instead of having like you know goat feet, it has you know human type feet, uh, but they describe it as being woolly. Uh, you know, mostly humanish with with goat horns or sheep horns, um, and so you know they call that the sheep squatch. Um, and yeah, then there's the bat squatch. Um, I'm sure that if I racked my brain, I could think of others. Um, the dog man phenomenon is also really interesting. Um, yeah, I've I've talked to a few people that think that what people are reporting when they report dog men are actually gangly adolescent sasquatch. With you know. Uh, messy hair um, mm. um and, and so mm. but that's you know people putting their own you know the people that that that, that want to believe in sasquatch and that you know that want to believe that that's a possibility because it's a hominid but something like a you know an upright dog is just obviously impossible in their world view um they will go and then say well what these people are actually seeing are young sasquatch well, we don't know what they're actually seeing. Um, am I skeptical of the idea of, uh, of the dogmen, that there are upright canines um, tromping around in the, in the woods of Wisconsin and Pennsylvania? Yeah, I'm very skeptical. Uh, that stretches the limits of, of your credulity. Um, you know, that, that's a really hard thing to accept. Uh you know, and it's a lot easier to accept that there's some unknown hominid or some unknown ape out there uh, than it is to accept that there's upright dogs. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to turn around and say that everybody that says they saw uh, a dog man actually saw a young Sasquatch. Uh, yeah. Although there is the devil monkey, um, which, you know, going back to I was talking about Adams County 
um, earlier, uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the angel burned into the church, um, in that same area, Duncansville, I said Wormsley, it's not the Wormsley, it's Duncansville, Duncansville angel, uh, in that same area of Duncansville, Lauren Coleman uh, has talked about what he calls the devil monkeys, which are very uh, baboon-looking type primates that were seen. Uh, and some of the first devil monkey reports came out of Adams County as well. And I've heard people say that the dog man might actually be these devil monkeys. And that's why you're seeing something that looks like a muzzle. You know, yeah. people observe and, and think it's canine. It's because it's a more baboon-like uh, muzzle uh, as opposed to, you know, the... the the ape-like, flatter, more human features of the Sasquatch. Um, you know, but it, it's hard enough to accept the idea that there's one unknown primate out there in the North American woods. When you start adding other unknown primates on top of that, it's messy. Fat squatch and sheep squatch and dogmen. Um, I love it all. You know, yeah. I'll read and study about it all. Um, but the idea that they're all flesh and blood animals that are undiscovered, that it, 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 gets, it does get a little harder to accept. Um, but, you know, to me, whether they're real or not um, is almost secondary to, to you know, uh, to, to, to the whole experience. I'm intrigued and interested in why uh, people believe that they believe that they what they believe. Um, you know, less so than is Dogman real, is Sasquatch real, uh, is Sheep Squatch real. Um, I'm interested in why people, when they see something that they can't explain, explain it away in the ways that they do. Um, you know, because I have friends that are on the very skeptical end of things, and if they saw something that looked like a Sasquatch, they would not accept that it was a Sasquatch, and they would say, eh, it's a hunter in a ghillie suit. I'm sure what I saw was just a hunter in a ghillie suit. Uh, well, I'm sure what I saw was just a dude in an ape suit trying to hoax people. Uh, and if it, well, you know, and if you were so far out that the idea of somebody sitting there waiting for people to come by and hoax you is almost impossible, then it would be more, you know, uh, it's a guy in a ghillie suit. It was a hunter. It was a guy in coveralls, and it's just blurry and hard to see. Um, and and you know. I find those folks that just completely explain it away in that way is interesting in some ways is the folks who automatically assume that it's a cryptid of some sort. Um, you know, if two people see a bear at night, why is one person going to go, that was a bear? Another person going to go, no, that was a dude in a suit. And another person going to go, you know, a bear where a bear is not supposed to be. Uh, yeah. Why is one person going to say it's a bear? Why is one person say it's a person in a suit? And why is another going to go, no, that was a Sasquatch. Uh, and you could have all three that saw the same thing and you're going to get those three different explanations. And I think it tells you a lot about human psychology, uh, and, uh, you know, human culture, uh, and, 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 you know, those sociological questions intrigue me just as much as, you know, the, the actual, the idea that there's an actual monster out there. Um. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why Reluctantly Codependent Sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. 
And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Uh, speaking of monsters, have you heard about the, the account of the members of the Rose um, Lightship in Oregon counting um, a giant sea, sea serpent called the Colossal Claude? Is this the one where the ship went down and they had to try to get onto the shore? Or am, am I conflating two different? I'm not sure if I have. Tell me about it, please. Uh, it's on about around March 1934. The skipper of the lightship Tender Rose turned from drum off a relief crew on the Clemson River lightship with a remarkable story. It seems the tower crew of a lightship plus the crew of the Rose saw a huge snaky thing swimming around the ship. A genuine bona fide, honest to God, free sea servant. It was about 40 feet long. Recounted to L.A. Larson, first mate aboard the Rose. It had neck some eight feet long, a bit round body, a mean looking tail, and an evil, snaky looking look to its head. Um, everyone agreed on every particular inscribing the monster afterwards. Jay Jensen, captain of the Rose, told the mooring. Oregon, that the creature's head looked more like that of a camel than a snake, but the witnesses agreed on most other details. Members of the crew, after watching the strange creature with field glasses for a few minutes, watched to launch a small boat and approach it for a better view. Officers, though, ordered them not to. The sea serpent was big enough that it could potentially rip tip the boat over. Eventually, the monster slipped away out of sight into legend. So that's their account. They've seen a giant sea serpent, giant, like serpentine creature, circling their boat, and they sound like it was pretty big. Uh, I'm not sure if I heard if I've heard that exact account, but I've heard so many like that. And yeah, one too. of the things that's intriguing about a lot of these is the folks that describe the head as being camel-like or horse-like. Um, one of my favorite theories about these kind of sea serpent sightings is that they're actually uh, a relic population of uh, um, Zublodon? Like like an mm. ancient whale. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Like a basket. Yeah. And so uh, that's one of my favorite uh, explanations for these is that they are a... Uh, let me make sure I have that. It's yeah, like Basilosaurus. The... Uh, a Zublodon. Basil... Yeah. yeah. They're actually, you know, which was thought to be a reptile, you know, whenever it was first uh, discovered in the fossil record. But now we know that it was actually, you know, an archaic form of whale. Um, And that would, you know, uh, explain why the head is more horse-like or or, or camel-like. You know, it's that mammalian-looking head. Um, It's a... which is completely different than, you know, uh, the the, uh, the more snake-like sea serpents, which have also been seen, um, like the, the, the Gloucester serpent, uh, of, you know, from the 1700s uh, on the east coast of the United States. Um, and, uh, yeah, on the west coast, man, uh, I would not be surprised for there to be some unknown whale. Um, you know, the idea that there are unknown creatures in the deep ocean um, Doesn't surprise uh, me. is much more plausible. Yeah than uh, than uh, a lot of the other cryptids that we talk about. Uh, and the idea that, you know, we've seen whales swim up into up into rivers and estuaries before, 
Uh, so the idea that these would be seen coming up into some of the, the rivers in Oregon um, and along the coast would not surprise me either. Um, because, you know, for one thing, they're not going to experience the problems with the switch from saltwater to freshwater that, uh, that, that fish would. You know, um, they don't need that salt water necessarily to sustain them uh, in the way that, 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 that other sea animals might. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, that's intriguing. That's interesting. And I, especially the camel-like head is what sticks out to me. It makes me think yeah. of, of the Basilosaurus. Yeah, for people who don't know, um, I believe horses and whales, they share a common ancestor, right? Um. I'm not 100% certain on that. I can't say for 100% certainty. Um, other than that, you know, almost all modern mammals evolved from some common ancestor. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm not 100% certain on that. I would have to do some. I would have to do some research. I'd have to look that up. Uh, I'm not sure about the uh, the. Uh, ancestry of, of modern whales although i do know that at one point whales did evolve from a land-dwelling ancestor um, yeah who recollect that from, a, from from high school and college science classes um, but i'm too far removed from those to to remember all those details now um have you heard the monster of Poncer Lake. It was a report made by Greg Long back in 1996. No, I'm not familiar with that one either. Uh, on October 1st, 1996, uh, Craig Long from the get this source, as you know, sources, um, the Rain Day Press, Eugene, Oregon. Uh, today, the banks of Concert Lake are overgrown with blackberry brambles, wild thistles, skunk cabbage, tall grass, and poison oak. Rapid vegetation shelters the lake located in Millenburg, Oregon, from outside viewers. If you happen to be knowledgeable of Millenburg or just plain inquisitive, you might, after some walking, find secretive lake hiding west of the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks, across from Willamette Industries. Farmland and tall trees surround the green, calm waters of the lake on all sides. That's good. You know, he's setting his tone. Okay. In 1960, the lake was easily accessible, a favorite hunting ground of the community's youth and young lovers. Of course, back then, Millsburg was far smaller than the seven or eight citizens it claims today. And a town of Albany, south of the lake, was probably half the size of or smaller, just a little Communities where neighbors talked to neighbors, where the old Salem Road existed, not the constant drone of Interstate 5, which lies to east, just on the other side of the Melodronus Albany paper mill. It was time when news spread quickly. It was said that a flying saucer had crashed into the lake. What? That's crazy. It all started the year before when a driver of a mint truck Traveling in Millsburg, possibly near the lake where mint is still grown, was terrified by a tall white creature that resembled a gorilla. The white-haired creature ran at 35 miles per hour alongside the driver's truck, peering into his cab. Sometime during the year, too, it was said that a flying saucer had crashed into the lake. 
That part of the story has yet to be verified. On July 31st, 1960, a Sunday night, the white monster returned. The story of uh, the Concert Lake monster was told by Betty Wetsby in a series of articles in the now defunct newspaper Greater Oregon, published in Albany. Seven teenagers from Albany were at the lake for a midnight stroll. Um, I don't know if I should say this because of their minors, some of them minors. Okay. I guess, yeah, they're, this is from what? Not that yeah, is fine. Yeah. Um, Jim Westby, Marilyn Stimmerd, Danny Everett, Ted Swarm, Pop Swarm, George Hiss, and Dick Mars. Two of the boys were hiding in one of the lanes on a lake, preparing to frightening their friends. When the pranksters heard of a loud noise that later they said was too loud to be from a human being, a seven-foot-tall white creature illuminated in the moonlight came squishing down the lane, making a noise, said one boy, as though he had water in his overshoes. The two boys ran screaming to alert their friends. The monster right behind them, the monster hid, boys hid themselves in brush, and the creature ran past them, uttering a weird cry the boys described as, Fleep, Fleep Weep. The boys managed to turn their flashlights on the creature. Their description was similar to those of others from the previous years, something like a big white polar bear or something like a gorilla. At home, in shock, the boys notified Link County Sheriff George Miller. They returned with older brothers and fathers to the lake to find the creature. Apparently, some of them saw the monsters that night as it stood by a tree. Story broke over radio KGAL in Albany on Tuesday, August 2nd. A posse of teenagers were soon walking around the lake, firing guns into the bushes. At one point, 200 people of all ages were at the lake at night. Supposedly, three teenagers, using a flash camera, managed to take a picture of a tall white creature standing on the opposite side of the lake. The creature reportedly straightened up to a height of 7 feet and fled into the undergrowth. The reporter of these events, Betty Wasby, went to the lake at 3.30 a.m. that July 31st with five friends. They had had a camera and a flashlight. They heard frogs croaking. Witnesses had told Wesby that the frogs would stop their croaking the creature was about. Wesby's size, a shoe was small inside the three-foot-wide impression left by the monster. After an hour of investigating, the white snags and pale uh, bushes and walking through the lanes, the visitors felt as if they were being watched. Gene Wattenberger affirmed Waspy's uh, feeling that something was crouching on the hillside. Several of the party ran to the car and jumped inside, slamming the doors. This may have startled the creature because Wetsby and her friends heard a tremendous crashing in the brush as something hurtled through the vegetation towards the upper end of the lake. An 18-year-old boy carrying a gun. Wolf escorted Westby to some footprints, where Westby saw huge wedge or duck-shaped feet shaped six and seven feet apart. Westby's size eight shoe was... Wolf showed Westby where the creature had apparently rested, smashing down every evergreen briar's when it's the fastest weight for it, leaped over seven foot tall bushes to land seven feet away. Mike Parter, 17, heard that he saw a large white 
form crouching in a heavy bush at the lower end of the lake where a small creature creek follows from a slough. When a creature rose up to more than seven feet, Potter twice fired at the creature. Potter said the creature spun around as though he had been hit in the shoulder. Potter and his friends with him ran from the scene. They returned later with state police and found that the area heavily trampled where the monster had first stood. He also found brush that was smashed down as if by a steamroller. Accounts of the monster of Concert Lake spread like wildfire, and Sheriff Miller and its officers found themselves constantly responding to excited calls from frightened citizens. Whether true or not, Westby reported that two lads fishing in the broad afternoon sunlight at Concert Lake were startled by the appearance of the white creature and had to be hospitalized for shock. A few weeks later, Westby reported that the people were coming from as far away as Portland and Eugene, Oregon to hunt for the creature. In her articles, Westby began to describe the creature as a humanoid. She portrayed him as essentially peaceful, not wanting to harm anyone. According to Westby, officers pursuing the creature had two of their hound dogs literally torn to ribbons. Westby said that the killing of dogs was the natural reaction of the creature at bay. If we found ourselves on a strange planet or in a foreign country, every hand turned against us, we would flee when pursued and fight when cornered, Westby wondered. If this is an exceptional creature from some star beyond our ken, another form of life corresponding to Homo sapiens, then we do little to turn, turn a hostile face towards it. The brush crashed ominously as a dark form hurtled by above us in a thick brush. A local telepath, uh, telepath, telepath, what? Telegraph? A, tel- a telepath? Like a psychic? A local tele- uh, stepped forward and claimed that the monster didn't like to be called a monster. Westby, a confined <laughs> telepath. Okay. Uh, Westby, a telepath, so like at night, the uh, telepath said that she would likely to a mentally accident monster what he would rather be called. Telepath receives an answer, visitor or alien. According to Westby, telepath said that the monster mentally communicated that he had to flee down because people were coming with a gun. Westby asked the telepath to inquire where the creature came from. At this point, Westby heard the pounding of heavy feet on the ridge above. It was the sound of a single pacer, such as only a bipedal can produce. The brush uh, crashed anonymously as a dark form huddled above us in a thick brush. Westby and the telepaths rushed to the glimpse of the creature, but only heard footsteps fading away in the distance. Westby and the telepath came upon a group of young people with one boy packing a rifle, just as the animal creature had told the telepath. The boys showed Westby footprints where the creature had run. The duck-like uh, footprints were impressed deeply into the soil, according to Westby. Yeah, duck-like. Like a, I guess like more like web feet in this account. Yeah. I love this story, man. The, uh, what kind of creature? A telepath returned during daylight and saw the broad, white, furry forehead uh, of the creature. The creature had two pointed cat like ears. What? Crazy. In a telepathic conversation, Wesley's friend learned that the creature wanted to be left in peace. His name was Flix. Flix said that he was not able to be put be put into the Earth's terms. Uh, 
who said he wanted to be less in face to uh, want to be able to explain where he came from. I'm not sure you could understand. It's hard to put into Earth terms. Before Flex could explain where he was from, he ran away, hearing another party of young people coming to hunt him down. Flex said, They're chasing me again. I mean no harm. Goodbye, friend. Come back. I am lonely. What the? Great, man. That is that is high weirdness of the of to the nth degree, man. I, you know, when you first started talking about it, I, th- I thought it was going to be like a lake monster, like a sea serpent type lake monster. Yeah. Um, and then as you started describing it, it rem- um, it reminded me more of the the Fort Worth monster, um, you know, which was described as like a white Bigfoot uh, in in, in uh, or Lake Worth monster rather in Fort Worth, Texas, you know, and it threw tires at people that came there and parked. Um, but then as you got into it with the UFOs and stuff, uh, if you're not familiar with the, uh, the chestnut Ridge stuff from Pennsylvania, from Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, um, yeah. you should check out the, 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 the chestnut Ridge stuff. Um, small town monsters did a documentary on it, uh, called invasion on chestnut Ridge. And that was one of the, the first, uh, or one of the most classic, like Bigfoots from UFO type stories. Uh, came from Ke- out of Kecksburg after the uh, it started with a presumed saucer crash uh, and uh, government cover up uh, coming in and taking away the, the acorn shaped UFO. Uh, and then there was all kinds of high weirdness uh, going on in and around Kecksburg, um, including a guy who talked about a UFO landing on his farm and seeing two Bigfoot type creatures come off of it and walk around and, uh, one of them was shot at too, and it was almost like the bullet just phased through it. Um, and uh, when I interviewed uh, Seth Breedlove about that, he told me that there were some even crazier stories that he did not put in the documentary uh, because he just thought that they, you know, stretched the limits of, uh, of, of imagination. Um, uh, you know, one of the people claimed that they saw a giant translucent caterpillar. Uh, for uh-huh. instance. So, uh, yeah. That? It out, man. Uh, it, it ended up going in a direction I was not expecting at all. Uh, and there are elements, like I said, in there that remind me of, of Fort Worth's Lake Worth monster, you know, because it basically sounds like a white Bigfoot. Uh, but then it just goes into that whole high strangeness territory. Um, and one of the things that's really intriguing to me was the thing about the dogs, uh, because, you know, we see uh, this uh, antagonistic relationship between. Uh, cryptids and dogs a lot you know we yeah. see in the dog man stories that they attack dogs uh, we hear it from you from bigfoots occasionally um in the mothman stories uh, there are a few different stories where they found dead dogs along the side of the road uh, in areas where the mothman have been sighted uh so the the whole dog hating aspect and the, and the attacking the dog aspect is that puts it right in there with the rest of those. That's I can't believe I haven't heard of this before because I love these really weird stories. And this one is, is right up there, man. But that's great. I'll have to look into this more. I don't know. I love that stuff too. It's crazy. Um, I, I, my, my computer is getting ready to die. Oh, no problem. We've uh, been here. We know it's like for 90 minutes already. We're yeah. We got, I'm sure you can edit it down to something yeah. usable. Um, if you have anything else, man, uh, I'd love to talk with you again. This has been. This Dude, I'll talk with you again. I also like tied into what you're saying, talking about all. Of it. You should come, definitely come back, please. Yeah, no, have me on again. It was this was a lot of fun. Um, 
I sent you a picture of the uh, of the footprint that I found in uh, Texas, uh, in the uh, in the in the big thicket. I uh, shot that to you over Facebook Messenger, uh, and I'm going to shoot you a couple other castings they've been taking uh, from just right down the road from me here, uh, not even 20 minutes from where I live. Uh, a girl I was talking to uh, in Grand, Kentucky, uh, cat made a cat made these casts uh, of something that she's seen there. Um, and there's some really interesting stories there, but. Yeah, if if and when you do Kentucky, I'd love to talk to you. I've got some great stories from in around here. Awesome. Right, have a great day, man. I'm All right. with some with some pants on and stuff. Yep. All <laughs> right, I've got to go help with the kids. You have a good one. All, right. All right, man. You too. See you. And stop. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or to find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on which you can describe subscribe to you also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show thank you bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.